Welcome to Black Bottom Saints with Alice Randall, a reader's companion. I'm your host, Alice Randall. Each week on this podcast, we're discussing a chapter in the book, The Lives of the Saints, The Rich History of the Black Bottom Neighborhood, The Cocktail Recipes, and Exploring What the Past Has to Tell Us About the Future. We'll also be talking about the play between history and fiction and how one informs the other. This week, we're discussing Nancy Elizabeth Johnson. Nancy Johnson, known to readers of Ziggy's column in the Michigan Chronicle as the Natchez Bell, is Ziggy's mother. I want to place her by quoting directly from the book in Ziggy's voice. My beginning, a Catholic faith that embraced Mary as a go-between, buffering men and women from their father and creator, as well as a love of smells, bells, rituals, and rosary, is what my mother carried north from Natchez. In my fiction and in real life, Nancy Elizabeth Johnson is born February 18, 1887. In the first half of this podcast, I will discuss how I followed the breadcrumbs Ziggy sprinkled through his columns, first down to Mississippi, then into the doors of one of the oldest Black Catholic parishes in the nation, where I uncovered the facts that would inform my fictional portrait of Ziggy's mother, my understanding of Ziggy's connection to the stage, and the very form of the novel Black Bottom Saints. In the second half of the episode, my daughter, the poet Caroline Randall Williams, who is one of the first people to read the earliest complete draft of this novel, will join me to bring her perspective on Nancy Elizabeth Johnson and the art of mothering an artist. But first, let's start with Ziggy's breadcrumbs, the facts I found in his columns. There were small breadcrumbs. In August of 1963, Ziggy refers to a, quote, ailing Natchez Bell in one of the columns. Then he tells us, quote, yes, the old girl was hospitalized for the first time in her life. Ziggy gives the details, cataract surgery on the left eye. And this all arises from a Friday night conversation in a club with Les McCann, who asked, how's your brother? I didn't use most of the specific details about her health from that column. But this column told me so much about the tone of Ziggy's relationship to his mother. It was fond. And it also said so much about the way that Ziggy's mother was integrated into the three big aspects of his work life. His showbiz world, it was natural to him to talk with Les McCann about his mother. The readers of his column were familiar with her as the Natchez Bell. And I already knew from memory that he spoke of his mother, who he refers to in this piece as that adorable lady from Mississippi to all the kids in his dancing school. The Natchez Bell is a genial presence in all three of Ziggy's most important workspaces, the show bars, his column, and the dance school. That's reason enough to make her a saint, but it wasn't the best reason. The best reason is following the breadcrumbs Ziggy drops about the Natchez Bell led me to the very form of this novel as a hagiography or Saint's Day book. Throughout the columns, Ziggy drops more than a few rosary beads. When he's not getting out his rosary beads, he's wearing out his rosary beads or thanking a friend in his column for gifting his mother with a new rosary. Following the breadcrumbs, I conducted interviews, read books, articles, master's thesis, and dissertations. When it came to Ziggy's mother, all roads led to Holy Name Church in Natchez, Mississippi. Today, 5% of African-Americans are Catholic. When Ziggy was born in 1913, 
there were about 7 million African-Americans, 200,000 were Catholics. One of the things I most enjoyed researching when writing Black Bottom Saints was Catholicism in Mississippi. I discovered the oldest Black Catholic congregation was in Natchez, the Natchez Bells hometown. Digging deep into Black Catholic history in Natchez, I discovered a surprising story of a Southern congregation that was integrated in the 19th century. I discovered that originally Natchez was home to a single Catholic church that welcomed Black and white, though not in the same pews. I then came upon vivid descriptions of what would have had to have been one of the most traumatic events in the life of every young Black Catholic girl in Natchez the day the Black Catholic Church opened its doors to them and the church that had been their church home shut them out and declared itself a white space. The fact of both of those church buildings are the bones of this chapter, and they are part of the historical record. Most everything else about the fictional Natchez Bell evolves from her relation to the church but it is imagined. I imagine she moved to Chicago to be closer to Father Tolton, her favorite priest, a black priest who she believed would be canonized one day as an official saint. I imagine that she joined the great migration of African-Americans leaving the rural South to relocate in the urban North as something of a religious pilgrimage. I imagined what St. Augustine, a Black and African saint, and his Black and African mother, Monica, might have meant to a Black and American woman growing up Catholic, first in Mississippi, and then into young womanhood in Illinois. I didn't have to imagine that St. State books would have been important to her. There was clear evidence to support that in the historical record of Black Catholic women. They went with the rosary bead territory. Let's circle back to the breadcrumbs in that column about the Natchez Bell in the hospital for a moment. They didn't just lead me to Mississippi. They led me to landing on the suite at the center of Ziggy's relationship with the Natchez Bell. The sweetest part, it is a mature relationship. They achieved an adult to adult relationship while maintaining the parent-child Aunt. Let's look at that column again. Ziggy refers to himself as Elizabeth's baby after telling the news of her surgery and the fact that he made a mad dash to Chicago to be a tonic for her. But he's not just her baby. He quickly moves back in the second paragraph of his column to Detroit and his busy Detroit life, describing it with these words that he was making all the picnics. His list of one week in his social life of picnics gives a clear idea of how vibrant mid-century Black Detroit life was. I have never been invited to this many picnics in a single month, in a single summer, as Ziggy was in a single week. Here's Ziggy's list. Handicappers and Idlewilder Sunday and coming up the Thursday luncheon group and Aldoff's at the Red Allen's farm this Friday and some special picnics some ladies are planning for what he called a select few. Ziggy is pleased to be among the selected. And I think that all starts with the Natchez Bell who singled Ziggy out from his siblings, all boys, by deciding he would be the priest 
and she and her brothers would help him in this pursuit. Of course, Ziggy had other ideas and he acts on the other ideas. They stay absolutely connected, though he acts on the other ideas that's grown. Catholicism and structure are not the only crucial gifts Nancy Elizabeth Johnson gives this novel. She's the patron saint of Black Bells, Migration, and Mothers. And Nancy Elizabeth Johnson isn't just important as Ziggy's good mother, she's important to all people struggling to be a good mother. That's a lot of people in this book and in the world. Many mothers in this novel, like many mothers in the world, need a patron saint. In this time of reckoning, we often overlook the private impact of racism. We overlook how racism impacts even something as intimate as being a mother. Many mothers need a patron saint. Some mothers are quite evil. Many have their work as mothers complicated by racism. Some mothers have their work as mothers complicated by the fact they are not the biological parent. Some of them have their work as mothers complicated by the fact they are not the expected gender associated with mothering, female. Others have their work as mothers complicated by economic challenges. Nancy Elizabeth Johnson keeps it simple. That's her genius. She loves her child simply. She has a healthy appreciation of and respect for Blackness. She faces economic challenges, but doesn't let finances grind the love out of her heart or the faith out of her soul. She loses a husband, but she doesn't lose her identity. She is close to her children, but she doesn't attempt to clip their wings. They are not her only interest. They may not even be her primary interest. The great passion of her adult life is an act that is once political, racial, religious, and romantic. She is bound and determined to see the African-American priest, Father Tolton, canonized as the first official Black saint in the Catholic Church. She loved a Black American church, a Black American priest, and she longed for a Black American saint. By having passions of her own, she gives her children space to have passions of their own. Her children and her grandchildren are not the subject of her life. They are the joys in her life. She is the subject of her life, but she has many hearts of affection. She would never call those beloved objects. They are not objects of affection. They are hearts of affection. Nancy Elizabeth Johnson doesn't have a narcissistic bone in her body. And for me, that makes her a very good mother. A question I've engaged in all of my novels is, what is a good mother? What are the special difficulties in being a good Black mother? Black Bottom Saints shares those concerns, but it presents a profound departure from my earlier novels, in no small part because it offers a portrait of a Black woman who at the end of the day and early in the morning found it easy to be a mother and found it easy to have confidence in her child and confidence in how the world would receive her child. The Natchez Bell constructs that confidence out of Saints Day books, rosary beads, and incense. The Natchez Bell was confident in Ziggy and confident the world would do right by Ziggy, just like she was confident the Catholic Church and God would do right by Tolton. Her genial confidence is a part of Ziggy's brash golden glow, and it is a miracle. To be that Black mother in this world 
to be any kind of good mother and be black in America is to be some kind of saint. Now I want to welcome in Caroline Randall Williams, my daughter, to discuss good mothers, bad maternal ambition, the power of old heads in conversation with new voices, and the value of secular communion of cocktail time. Welcome, Caroline. Good morning, Mama. I'm so glad to be here. Ziggy's portrait of the Natchez Bell is loving, but it's not romanticizing. He respectfully depicts her faith without subscribing to it. He's able to interrogate the stories that sustained her. He's able to hear and respect her wishes without granting her wish, at least not her every wish. This is very much the portrait created by an adult child who believes his parent to be at once more than a good enough parent and foible. Would it surprise you if I told you you were my model for writing Ziggy's relationship with his mother? <laughs> no, <laughs> is the short answer. Um, as you were setting that up, I was going, that's, I hope, how I think about my mom. I think that when I think about our relationship and people who ask me, like, how did you write two books with your parent or, you know, things like that. Um, I think that one of the things I tell people is that you always raise me figuring out how to tell. I mean, I think that this is something that you've taught me that George also did is how to tell, tell a child some version of the whole truth. And then, you know, you add layers to that as they get older and are able to be mature enough to understand. And I think that because you always told me whole truths about your life or some versions of them and then added layers as I became old enough to understand them, I was like never surprised or like unduly unsettled by any new thing you told me, however hard it had been for you or however hard the world might think it was. And I think that makes for two adults by the time that the child's an adult that really love and understand each other's. I want to go one little step deeper there because it was interesting thinking about Ziggy and the Natchez Bell for me that no Ziggy actually doesn't believe in God the way the Natchez Bell does, though he subscribes to many of the rituals of the Catholic faith. What do you think, what's the story that sustained me that you most have wanted to interrogate? Or what is something that I believe that you don't believe? <laughs> What is something that you believe that I don't? A story that sustained you. I mean, I think that that's a funny question because I have always been, I'm taking this question literally for a second. I think I've always been the one with more need for actual faith in things beyond this world than you. You're like much more of a secular humanist. So what is it you say we deal in the real so I think that there are things that I have believed that I'm not sure you did <laughs> happen. <laughs> I think that happens more. Um, I love that. I think that one of the, that you don't believe that my secular humanism is right. I love that one day, uh, one of my favorite Caroline mama stories is that Caroline, one day I said to Caroline, I love you more than anything in the world. Now, most children will be happy to hear these words. It's a very sweet bedtime. I was sitting there and I said, I love you more than anything in the world. And Caroline said, quite simply, mama, you should love God more. <laughs> and I said, I am more sure that you exist than God exists. I love you more than anything in the world. And Caroline said, mama, I will pray for you. 
<laughs> do How I love the going to Sunday school with my father. <laughs> that was like a <laughs> I love the fact that you had your own belief system and yeah. that you were going to have it in the faith and that even very simply put that you thought I should love God more than I loved you. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, that's a funny one. That's a funny one. I also think I just didn't know about the blues yet. I didn't know about turning the gaze to what's here on earth as opposed to thinking about the promised land. I didn't know about that yet. (laughs) The Natchez Bell's Catholicism affects Ziggy's life in a very unexpected way. It pushes him towards the stage. His mother intended to push Ziggy towards the priesthood, but ultimately the Natchez Bell must watch as Ziggy discovers the stage is his church. Smoky show bars are his church. In my own life, my father raised me to be a lawyer. He told me he wanted me to speak for those who could not speak for themselves. In me, that ambition morphed into a desire to speak for those who could not speak for themselves by writing novels. Often I'm speaking for the dead who did not get to have their say, particularly women, but in the case of this book, Ziggy and so many of his friends. Did I try to push you in one direction that you ultimately experience as a push into an altogether different direction? Yes, probably. Um, Let's think. Uh, How do I organize? That's a big thought to think out loud in front of people. (laughs) Um, I think maybe there were certain kinds of intellectual space that you would have been really happy with a big nerd. And I think that I was and am a big nerd, but I think that there are certain parts of like my vanity, my will to throw parties above all things almost, um, which that, that I got from you too. But I think like my love of what you would call bon vivance of the good life and of sort of in some moments maybe like not anti-intellectualism in the way that it's been manifested in the last few years in this country, but like an irreverence for canon. Like, I think that some of that is that I find defines me a lot is a reaction against some of the more like hyper-vigilant forms of being a student that you were, that you encouraged when I was younger. But you turned out to be the most hardworking person I know. And I'm a hardworking person. I came from a very hardworking family. So I think you're absolutely. Um, yeah, I, well, it's the work hard, play hard, but you just did the work hard. And then you thought working was playing. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> we have to also play, but like actually play. And we have to play as hard as we work. <laughs> I think that is a wonderful way of putting it. Cause I did teach you to work hard, play hard, thinking that play was work and work was play. And you decided that actually there is such a thing as actual bon vivant play. Yeah, like dinner where we don't talk about our next writing project. (laughs) (laughs) Is there such a thing? Well, I'm glad you mentioned dinner because I wanted to pivot and talk about the cocktails in the novel that are a five cents addressed to joy. We see that in every chapter when the recipe is given, but it is... This chapter about Ziggy's mother because of her Catholicism that underscores that cocktails are offered as a kind of secular communion, as a sacred ritual of redemption. One of the hours I most trust, one of the hours I most treasure with you 
are oddly those hours when we share a cocktail. It underscores that we are now both adults, but it's also our secular communion. Mm-hmm. Do you ever experience it that way? One, yes, all the time. I, you're one of my favorite people to have a drink with. Um, and I am also one of my favorite people to have a drink with. I know that's like frowned upon in some circles, but I think drinking alone, if you enjoy going on dates with yourself is not a bad thing. But I think um, <laughs> I love having those moments with you because they do make me feel grown. And they also, um, I enjoyed the way both of our minds wander when we'd have a drink. And I also, I enjoy getting to know your palate differently. That's a fun truth of it. I love that I know that you like certain kinds of sweet and smoke that are very different from the kinds of like medicinal weird things that I'd gravitate towards. Um, And it's like, it's a fun way of knowing somebody's like wild and loose and happy things. And cocktails, especially even more so than like, say, a glass of wine or something like that. One of the things I when I was thinking about that question and how much we do enjoy our cocktail time together, I realized it's something I did not experience with either of my parents. Mm. Um, I had a very bad mother and a very good father. But one of the things about my very good father is that he had spent most of his life, as he would call it, as a raging uh, alcoholic. And one morning woke up and said, if I drink today, I'm going to have to tell lies. And he didn't like to lie. So he said, I'm not going to have a drink today. And went from taking almost all of his calories from alcohol to being sober. Never went to a meeting, never did, did go to the hospital, uh, but he came out of the hospital and stayed sober the rest of his life. And he always told me to pace myself so I could drink all of my life. So I never, by the time I was of drinking age, he was no longer drinking. So he watched me have a drink, but I never had a drink with him. And my crazy mother never drank because she always wanted to be in obsessive control of all circumstances and had no interest in any of the joys of life. So I certainly never had a cocktail with her. So I realized that it's something that I treasure as a reward for pacing myself (laughs) that I get to have a cocktail with my daughter, but also because I was that parent who I did not drink with you until you were over 18 or 21, that it is a place where I honor your adultness and your right to make choices. And, but it does just finally feel sacred. I don't go to church for communion very often, but I always thought of how wild a thing it is that this is the blood and the body of Christ, that we come together and conceive of this kind of wild mysticism. And when we sit down and share a glass with the layers in it, it is as if we are taking complexity and making it work for us, making all the complexity and balance and unbalance something that just brings us closer together. And I love those moments with you. Yeah, I love those moments with you. I think, you know, it's Blues Church. I keep on, I'm thinking so much about the blues lately, as you know, but like that, the secular sacred brown liquor as the the blood of the black experience or something it feels true to me there's some kind of like yeah cosmic transcendent gesture in that for sure and that muddy water mm-hmm. nancy elizabeth johnson is an important saint in the novel because she's ziggy's mother and because she is a good mother but there's another role that she plays 
and it spotlights a role you played in the life of this novel. In most of the first drafts of the novel, in fact, all of the early drafts, the Natchez Bell was the first saint in the book. And if Ziggy alone was sequencing the novel, I think she would have always been the first saint in the book. But Ziggy alone is not sequencing the book. A conceit of the novel, and this is a little bit of a plot spoiler, is that though Ziggy is writing a Saint's Day book specifically as a gift to a young student of his who's been kidnapped and who probably has had a very bad mother, Mari, also known as CG or Colored Girl, ultimately Mari does inherit the book as a grown-up and she gets to edit it. And when Mari tells the story, Robert Hayden becomes the first saint in it. And Robert Hayden has two very complex and less than desirable mothers, something CG would appreciate it. So cut to the chase. When Ziggy's editing the book, it starts off with a really great mother. And when CG edits the book, it starts off with somebody who had two bad mothers. You were an early reader of the novel and you suggested a very significant edit that the most abusive parts of CG's relationship with her mother should come in early in the novel. And you said something that was so telling that almost made me weep, to give the reader a chance to get over them. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to step into that role, even briefly as an editor for your mother and what it was like for you to read some of my writing that spoke to some of the hardest hours of my life? Yeah, it's an honor and joy to get to read uh, the book of a great author when it is in the works, first of all. So let me just say that separately from anything else. For me, it was actually sort of really cathartic because one, I think it speaks again to my understanding of like your parenting genius of the way you raised me. So honestly, um, about your truth that reading the book there were moments that I hadn't imagined the way that you ultimately told them of your, of your biographic, of your story. There are pieces of your story that I learned different dimensions to um, that were differently bad than I imagined because of the ways that you protected me from them, I guess, or, or the way, the, the things that you'd chosen to like, I don't want to say restraint because I don't think that you know, we've never been withholding, but I think you've, you know, people can get enough of the truth without having to know graphic details. You know, I think that there's like a sense of sometimes people want to hear people's lives out of voyeurism. And it's like, it's enough to know that there's been a hard thing. You don't need to know anything else about the hard thing. And I've, and I've always felt like you've told me enough to not feel like there's mysteries, but then there have still been some mysteries that were just like a matter of me not knowing the full picture or like the nature of the crime in some way or something like that. And I think one, so reading the book, there weren't any perspective shifting surprises really. But I do think that the fact of that, that being true was because I've known you for so long and you've built those layers so carefully for so long. And I did think to myself, how do I protect my mom who's being so vulnerable in this book from freaking out people who don't have that weren't raised by Alice Randall and might not be able to read this and still have peace about it and I thought I want and then that's when I thought move it to the front because 
the book is like a soothing. The rest of the book is a soothing understanding of that transcendence from trauma. But like in order to, you needed to like leave room for the transcendence to happen after the trauma in the book, uh, I thought. And I think also it was, you know, getting to edit your book, it was empowering for me because I think sometimes like in the moments of tension when I was growing up and even now, sometime, and we talk about this, like I have a lot of double consciousness and it seems to be a muscle that I developed because you have, you don't tend to operate with that <laughs> function. And I think for me getting to read a book and give you chances like in our private space to help make decisions about how other people will experience something relative to how you said it um, so that it serves you and your book as best as possible. I think that was really, um, yeah, that was cathartic for me. I think it was a really good new dimension of our relationship. I am so deeply appreciative of the editing you gave the book. And I think that, I think that's such a sweet way to put it that I didn't realize people not brought up in my house might've really been shocked and disturbed in ways that they could not get over and might have had to stop reading my book. If I hadn't had the benefit of you being aware of that and helping me say my truth as candidly, but pace the telling differently so it could connect with that other audience. So thank you, my darling. Love you. Love you too. You have had a big career and you're only in your early 30s. You are a poet, a professor, a pundit, and a food activist. And you invite me into all of that space, like Ziggy invited his mother in. He invited his mama into the clubs where he was emceeing, into, up to Idlewild. What's the secret to inviting your adult parent into your adult spheres without reverting to earlier days? You seem to have actually perfected that art in the last year or two. We often hear people say that they going back home, they go back home and they revert to earlier roles and ways and like they can't stop it. You don't. You are living in the house where you were raised and I'm living someplace completely other, but you're living in that house in ways I could not imagine and certainly didn't dictate and don't fully approve. Not that you're concerned with my approval, but I am impressed. What's the secret to that, to inviting me in and also being your own original self? I mean, I think I, this is, this is my answer for most things in life. I was like, you'd have to ask Alice Randall that question to get the best answer. Um, but I think, you know, I think that the secret is the health of our relationship from the beginning of it. Right. And I think that's one part. And then the other part is, it's funny, like I thinking about the earlier part of the conversation where I was like, you know, saying that, when you asked if you'd push me in one direction that then had me rebel, but then it sort of just created a full circle. Um, Cause I think that I've wandered back into the spaces you push me into just on my terms, you know, in the sense that when we teach at the same university, you know, we've both co-written songs, we've both published articles and some in shared spaces. I think that what's cool and it's a luxury I have that a lot of people don't. So I don't know how to give advice to other people who don't get to share in a career space with their parents. It's like, I just, and I, I've told people this since we wrote Soul Food Love. What's it like? People are saying, what's it like to write with your mother? Um, and I'm like, I mean, who wouldn't as a young artist want to be mentored or be apprenticed to 
an expert of their craft who wants nothing but the best for them. Like that's a luxury that every artist wants. And then when you have a mentor, of course you want to have dinner with them. Of course you want to invite them to everything you do. The people that want me because I write things, you're still cooler. <laughs> so of course I want to bring you. Um, that's just selfish. It's, it's, it's selfish and spoiled of me. I just want to bring my cool mom because she has, you know, number one country songs and New York Times bestselling novels. And she's not afraid to go to court with the gone with the crazy gone with the wind people, you know, like I think I just have the luxury of a very cool parent. So of course I want to bring you. Um, and I think that also then I just, because of the things we've talked about with the cocktails and the transparency, like we enjoy each other. Um, and you always want your favorite person in your corner when you're out in the world. Um, and then I think in the last couple of years, you also trust me more. And so when I gently give advice or stake my claims in spaces, you hear it as not disrespect, but collaboration. And I think that that is, that also makes it even more fun for us as I get older. And yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's some part of it. And I think, you know, for, I guess what people can take away who don't have the part of the, the relationship that we do of the shared professional space is, and one thing that, you know, as you get, as I've gotten older, there were things that used to drive me nuts because I couldn't take myself out of it and put, I think that as a kid, what am I trying to say? Learning to put you first in some of our conversations because we are both equal adults. I think that's a hard thing for some kids, kids to do, even as adults is to say, my parent might come first in this conversation. Or like my parent might come first in this exchange and like, I'm a grown up. I don't need to have this exchange suit me. I like in like, in like I wouldn't need to. And in the other, you know, with professional space, you make those kind of decisions all the time. I think, especially if you're a well-loved, well-raised kid, maybe it's hard to be like, oh, actually this is not about me. It's my mom's turn. <laughs> Handing over turns is an important thing as you get older, I guess. Well, I love that you land on that spot. And I think you're hard-headed in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> I think your advantage has been you are hard-headed. So you stood up for your right to be you. And you have heard me say, I'm a, one of the funny things we've said, and now I don't say it as often, is I'm a human being too. Mm -hmm. So, which means I'm making mistakes. I need to come first sometime that it is a back and forth that we are really respecting each other as two co-equals in this space now. And if anything, I think you have more power. I think it's so sweet that you say you have a cool mom because the truth of it, and in this discussion about Ziggy and his mother, I want to embrace this truth. I'm a difficult person in ways that you're not difficult. I had a very abusive mother. I don't smile all the time. I, I'm happier more often than I smile, but I'm passionately connected to the world. And you have come to appreciate that about me and have a respect for me. And one of the things that I think that's made it work for us is better and worse. My good points and my bad points. No one knows them better than you do. Most people say that about, they know their children. And in fact, any smart parent knows children withhold a lot of things. I am not the expert on you. You are the expert on you. But because I was your first book of life, you may actually be, aside from me, the other expert on me. And I feel that you have um, 
used your insight and wisdom well, and you have allowed me to know more and more parts of you. And so I appreciate that. I want to lift a cocktail to you, the libation for the feast day of Nancy Elizabeth Johnson. It's called the Natchez Bell. Today, we could call it the Nashville Bell in honor of you as well. And it's one jigger of bourbon, one sugar cube, one jigger of soda, water, three sprigs of mint, an orange slice, and a Luxardo cherry. In a tall glass, you place a mint, then muddle. You add the sugar and the soda water. You muddle a bit more, then stir till sugar is dissolved. You add bourbon. My daughter loves that brown liquor. Then you add ice cubes. Garnish with an orange slice and a Luxardo cherry. The Natchez Bell. On the next episode, we'll be discussing Black Bottom Saint, Edward St. Benedict Pleak. Keep zagging with Ziggy and always remember, love is the strut and hate is the stumble. This podcast was produced by Chelsea Crowell and Aaron McNally. The theme from Black Bottom Saints was written and recorded by Lewis York. Nashville Women Blues was recorded by Reese Palmer and written by Bessie Smith. The novel Black Bottom Saints is published by Amistad, HarperCollins, and is available at your favorite bookstore and on Audible. Find out more at alicerandall.com.